First Thessalonians 1, 1 through 10. All right, would you read along with me? Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Uh, You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only was the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now we'll have Pastor Mike. All right. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, reading that scripture passage for us. Um, I think whenever um, a new year rolls around, the new year always brings the opportunity to uh, do kind of a self-diagnostic. You know, we make a lot of resolutions in the new year. We make a lot of goals for ourselves. And even as a church, what we're trying to do in this new year before we move is to cast a vision for what we want to do in terms of ministry and also just personally, um, spiritually, in our own hearts, um, how we want to grow in 2017. So I want to begin today's message by asking you a diagnostic question that you can ask yourself. Who do you worship? Who do you worship? Or even what do you worship? Now, this might sound like a really strange question. Uh, Mark, don't you know we're at church? Don't you know that we are in a worship service and we're gathered together here, most of us as Christians? So, of course, we know who we worship. But really, I want to ask you again, who do you worship? When I say worship, I'm asking you, who is the one person Or what is the one thing in your life that you cling on to, that you hope for, that you love, that consumes your thoughts, that if it was taken away from you, snatched away, you would be utterly crushed? Or what is the thing that you turn to when you're down in the dumps or it seems like your life around you is crumbling? Or as one pastor has said, What is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living? Um, A few years ago, I had the opportunity to go on a mission trip to India. And uh, I don't know if many of you here have been able to go to India, but um, if you go to a place like India, uh, 
this question is a bit easier to answer, I think, at least at face value, because when you go to India, if you ask someone, who do you worship or what do you worship, all you have to do is go into their house and you'll see a little statue or deity that they bow down to and that they serve. And there are thousands of these shrines all across India. But I wonder, is it really that different here in New York City? You know, we might not have little idols or uh, little shrines in our homes, or at least most of us, I think, don't. We might not bow down or chant several times or serve these things made by people. But how many of us spend so much of our time, so much of our thoughts, so much of our resources to serve one desire or one thing that so controls us that it drives all of our actions, all of our thoughts, while God, the true God, is just sitting on the sidelines. I think we've all here, if we're honest with ourselves, experienced this kind of worship. Uh, and Whether you're here and you've been walking with Christ for many decades, or you're a new believer, or maybe uh, you're exploring the faith, uh, we've all felt that pull, that tug towards something or someone that defines who we are and what we're about. And I pray that today, uh, in 2017, the Lord would help you to see maybe a little bit more clearly what it really is that you worship day in and day out, uh, and what place God, the true God, has in your heart. Uh, So before I dive into the passage, uh, would you pray with me once more? Lord, uh, I thank you for this new year, uh, and I thank you for the opportunity in this new year to uh, do a self-diagnostic and to really ask, uh, where are we with you, Lord God? Uh, We can make a lot of resolutions about our health, uh, a lot of personal goals, but uh, really, I just want to ask you to help us during this time and this year to ask, how are we doing with you? Lord, so please, would you grant us your Holy Spirit? Would you speak to us? Would you grant us ears to hear what you have to say? Uh, In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So our passage today comes from 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verse 1 to 10. Uh, But I'm mainly going to focus on verses 6 to 10. But I just want to summarize for you what verses 1 to 5 say. Uh, In this letter, in verses 1 to 5, Paul, he's describing how the gospel first came to the church at Thessalonica. He describes how, in verses 1 to 5, the gospel came to them not only in word, but also with the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says that this was all because of God's sovereignty. So in verses 1 to 5, Paul describes how the Thessalonians came to faith. And then in verses 6 to 10, which we'll be focusing on, he describes what they're coming to faith, what they're accepting the gospel actually looked like, and what effect that had on other people. Uh, So what I want to look at today in this passage is um, how true faith, true faith results in true repentance, and how true repentance results in faithful witness. Uh, So let's look first at uh, verses 9 to 10 in our passage to see what that true faith of the Thessalonians actually looked like. Uh, Starting in verse 8, Paul says something uh, very interesting about this faith of the Thessalonians. Remember, the Apostle Paul, uh, who wrote much of the New Testament, 
he was probably the greatest missionary to ever have lived. Um, you know, who would give up the opportunity to have the Apostle Paul come and speak at their church in the first century? But it's interesting that in verse 8, Paul says that the faith that the Thessalonians had spread across the entire world so that Paul himself and his missionary partners didn't need to say anything. He said that we had nothing to say. That's an amazing thing for someone like the Apostle Paul to say that you know, your faith, there was something about your faith that was so amazing that I, we had nothing more to say. Paul's point is that there was something so radical about their faith. What kind of faith is this that, the, that causes even the Apostle Paul uh, to say this? He answers that question in verse 9 when he says, For they themselves, that is, those in every place, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, the Thessalonians. And they report how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. He says that the Thessalonians turned to God from idols. Paul's talking here about repentance. You know, I think when we think of that concept, repentance, what first comes to mind usually is a change in your thought processes or a change in your mind or, you know, confession. And I think those things are part of repentance, but I think repentance also includes something more. Repentance, according to the Bible, uh, is about actually having a change, a turn in the direction of your heart so that your heart is no longer going towards something else, towards an idol, but it's actually going towards God. Paul says here that the people in these areas, in Macedonia, in Achaia, and everywhere around the world, that they saw how the Thessalonians repented. They saw how the Thessalonians turned to God from idols, so that the great Apostle Paul, he had nothing more to say, nothing to say to these people. But does this kind of repentance from idols, does that still relate to us in the 21st century here in America, in New York City? Last I checked, there were not many idols uh, hung up on people's doors or in their rooms. Um, And oftentimes when we think of idols, we think of places like India or other countries where they might actually still uh, worship man-made idols. Surely our society has moved beyond uh, such a need for idol worship. But I think if we're honest, I think this question ultimately comes back again to what do you worship? When we worship in our hearts something other than God, then that's idol worship, that's idolatry. By definition, according to the Bible, Idolatry is substituting some created thing for God in the heart, in the center of your life. Uh, One of my professors in seminary, he was a counseling professor, and uh, he describes an idol like this. He says that an idol is something or someone besides Jesus Christ that has taken the title to your heart's trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight. An idol is often what motivates 
your behavior. It can be what drives you or drives your fears and delights. It is that secret desire that we want to hide from others, the desire that elicits shame when it does come to the surface. Even Jesus in Luke chapter 6, he says that the good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good, and that the evil person, out of the evil treasure of his heart, produces evil. So you see, whatever it is that we do outwardly, whether it's in our jobs or in our homes or the things that we struggle with, all of those things ultimately flow out of a desire that we have in our heart. If you struggle um, with lust, for example, uh, there's actually, your problem is not lust, but there's actually a deeper heart idol that is compelling you to act out. Maybe you struggle with uh, yelling in anger at your children. Uh, or uh, maybe some of you struggle with road rage. Uh, I know not many people drive in New York City, but some do, and uh, it's not a pleasant experience. Uh, and if that's you, then your problem is not your children's disobedience. It's not the driver in front of you on your way home from work. But all of those things, your children's disobedience, that driver on I-95, those things are just triggers for what's already in your heart. There's some idol that you worship, whether it's uh, sex, whether it's acceptance, whether it's comfort, or whether it's having your own way that's causing you to act out. And Paul, in this passage, he actually gives us a description of these idols. He tells us what these idols are like. He says, uh, in verse 9, he says that the Thessalonians turned from idols to serve the living and true God. They turned from idols to serve the living and true God. And I think this tells us a few things about the idols in our hearts. First, you know, sometimes we talk about idols in church, but something that we fail to recognize is we actually serve these idols in our hearts. We actually serve them. Not only do these idols consume our thoughts, but we actually serve them and offer sacrifices to these idols in our hearts. Whether your idol is money, whether your idol is comfort, we serve and offer sacrifices to them. To give some examples, let's say you idolize money. If you idolize money, then you will sacrifice time with your family on the altar of your pursuit to become rich. If you idolize marriage you will sacrifice maybe your purity or your time with your friends so that you can have what you most desire. If you idolize comfort, which I think is a very strong idol here in America, if you idolize comfort, then you will sacrifice the opportunity to do something risky for God so that you can have comfort at all costs. You see, these idols in our hearts, we still worship them. We still serve them. We actually bring sacrifices to them because we hope that these idols will return the favor and that they will please us. Second, Paul tells us that these idols are not living, but these idols are dead. These idols are dead. They have no power to give you the joy that you desire. They have no power to give you the safety and security that they offer you. They have no power to resolve the real issues in your life. 
which is not that your children are disobedient, which is not that you don't have a job or that you don't like your job or whatever your sin struggle is, but the root issue is that you have a broken relationship with your Creator. Though all of us here were created in God's image to serve Him, to worship Him, to offer our lives to Him as living sacrifices, we've chosen instead to worship and serve other things. And that is the definition of what the Bible calls sin. Sin is the problem in your heart that these idols have no power to solve. And as we said earlier in worship, Christ came to solve that problem. Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross and rose from the dead so that your sins would be forgiven and so that you would be freed from dead idols to serve the living and true God. And if you are here and you are in Christ, if you have trusted in Christ, then God has given the Holy Spirit to you so that your eyes could actually be open to see these idols in your heart for what they truly are, to see that they are dead, that they are unable to give you life. The final thing that Paul shows us here about the nature of these idols is that these idols, these idols are not only dead, not only do we serve these idols, but these idols are false. These idols are false. Paul says that they turn to serve not only the living, but the true God, which tells us that the idols that they were serving were false idols. You see, most idols that we have, they're not, they're not um, idols that are completely distant from desires that God has given us, but most idols that we struggle with, or actually all idols that we struggle with, are twisted forms of good desires that God has created us to have. Because the enemy knows that in order to win uh, people to himself, he knows that he has to feed them lies. And the way that he does that is he takes the God-given desires that you have and he twists them. He takes these things that God has given as gifts, these secondary things, and he convinces you that what you need is to make it the ultimate thing, the primary thing. Because it's not wrong to desire a job. It's not wrong to desire financial security even. And it's not wrong to enjoy comfort or to want marriage. But what happens is that we begin to think that unless we have these things, we will never be satisfied. Unless we have these things, we will never have joy and peace. We, t- we take these things and we make them the ultimate thing. And we begin to serve them, to worship them, to offer sacrifices to them. Idols, they lie to you by convincing you that as long as you keep pursuing, as long as you just do whatever it takes to get that idol, then you will be happy. But true faith, True faith, truly knowing and believing and trusting God will lead to true repentance, which is when you turn from these idols to serve the living and true God. But then that raises the question, if these idols are so powerful, if they have such a strong hold on us, how do we do this? How do we actually repent in this way? And how do we actually turn from these idols?
Uh, there are three steps that I would suggest, and I don't want to suggest these as any sort of instant remedy. Uh, this is not a three-step plan uh, to instantly free you from your idols, but I do hope that uh, these things will help you this year to think more about your idols and to struggle with God and with others in community to try and serve the true and living God more and more. So the first thing, the first thing I think is that is essential is that you need to identify the idol. Whatever it is that you are doing, whatever it is that you are struggling with, maybe at work or in your family, in that moment, ask yourself, who is the master of this pattern or this thought or this feeling or behavior? Um, One of the examples that uh, my counseling professor uh, always used was the example of driving home from work. And uh, I come from Philly. I know a lot of or some of you also come from Philly, and if you're from Philly, you know that uh, driving on I-76 is not a pleasant experience. Uh, there have been many times when I've driven on I-76 and I've cut people off uh, accidentally. Um, and in Philly, people, when you do that, they don't just let you off the hook. Uh, at least a few times, I've had people actually chase me down after I've cut them off. Um, and when I looked in my rearview mirror, I saw them uh, cursing me out, probably wishing death upon me, driving right by my side and you know, pointing fingers at me. I mean, it's a scary experience. I have yet to experience that here in New York, but maybe if you're from Philly, you know, that might sound familiar to some of you, or maybe it's just something I've experienced. But you know, one of the things my counseling professor would say is that the worst behaviors of people come out when we're driving. Why is that? It's because when we're driving, we think that no one can really see or hear us. We think that when we're driving, it doesn't matter what we do because there's no consequences. And I think when we're in that kind of situation, what is actually really in our hearts begins to come out. That idol that we have in our hearts begins to show itself. If that happens to you, uh, whether you're driving or whether you're at work and some stressful situation causes you to sin, whether you're at home and some stressful situation or something causes you to sin, ask in that moment, what is it deep down in your heart that's causing you to act out? Is it a desire to have your own way? Are you worshiping a false sense of security that you think will come only when you get somewhere two minutes earlier? Identify that idol and ask yourself tough questions about your motivations. Because unless we do that, all we'll ever do is start treating the external behaviors, and we'll never get down to the heart issues. Second, not only identify the idol, but you need then to turn to God from this idol. You have to turn to God. We know that idols are false. We know that idols lie to us because they take truths about God and twist them. So what we need to do is we need to ask then, how am I seeking to satisfy this desire in this idol when I should satisfy this desire in God? Your idol might be marriage or it might be financial security. And you might believe in your heart that unless you have these things, you'll never be happy. But the beauty of the gospel is that it opens your eyes to see that only knowing God and being known by God will truly satisfy you. And I think part of this, too, um, 
involves recognizing that fear plays a huge role in idolatry. Our hearts want to ask, but what, Pastor Mark, what's, what's going to happen if I don't get this? What will happen if I never get married? What will happen if I don't get this job? What will happen if I don't get that grade? What will happen if I don't get there on time? What will happen if I'm not financially secure? Fear drives those idols inside of you. Remember the gospel. Remember how the gospel tells you that Christ frees you from fear because we have not received a spirit of fear to fall back into slavery, but we have received a spirit of adoption as sons. Remember that God... Remember that God's word says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things, all things that we need? If God really is your heavenly Father, then he knows what you need. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he's your heavenly Father? Uh, The the last thing uh, that you need to do is uh, act. After you've identified the idol, after you've turned to God from the idol, act. Because it's not enough to just identify the idol and turn to God from the idol, but you have to then ask yourself, how can I now seek to behave in a way that puts Christ at the center of my desires? What is the good fruit that I can actively pursue as I turn from this idol to the living and true God? Because it's one thing to repent of an idol. It's one thing to say to God, I'm sorry that I pursue this idol. But then it's another thing to then actively seek to do good as you pursue God. Um, maybe your, if your idol uh, is financial security, uh, which causes you to uh, not want to be generous, uh, if you recognize that idol, act. Seek uh, God and seek to find ways that you can be generous to others. Uh, the final thing that I, I want you to see here in these verses is that Uh, Repentance from idols is not just about uh, making Good News Church better. It's not just about improving our own lives in 2017. It's not just about uh, another New Year's resolution that we can make to improve ourselves. But this kind of repentance, when we turn from idols, actually has a missional dimension. You know, we've been reading a lot from the book of Acts. And if you read the book of Acts, what you notice is that... uh, Whenever the gospel goes somewhere uh, where there's worship of foreign idols, what happens is that those people, when the gospel comes to that place, they turn from those idols. In our passage in verses 6 to 8, Paul describes what happened when the gospel came to the Thessalonians. He says, They became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Then it says that these Thessalonians, they became an example to the the people in Macedonia, to the people in Achaia, and also to the people all around the world. Paul goes on to say in verse 8 that the word of the Lord sounded forth from them, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but everywhere. So do you see what's happening here? Paul's saying that the gospel has reached the Thessalonians. And he says that the word has sounded forth from the Thessalonians. And when we think that when we think of the word sounding forth, we usually think of preaching, right? We usually think of evangelism. We think of uh, speaking the truth of the gospel to our neighbor. 
But what does Paul say here? He says that your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. He says, the word of the Lord has has sounded forth. And then, right after that, he says, your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So this word of the Lord that has sounded forth everywhere, that is so radical that Paul has nothing more to say, Paul equates that with their faith in God. What Paul is saying is that these people in all these places, when they saw how the Thessalonians turned from idols to serve the living and true God, they were amazed. They were amazed and uh, so amazed that Paul says he had nothing more to say. You know, the Thessalonians, I don't think, were very different from us. Uh, Though they lived in the first century, they also lived in a world that was surrounded by idols, uh, not just physical idols, but also idols of the heart. Um, I think for someone to not only change their outward behavior, but change the very desires of their heart, that's something that someone can't do by their own strength. That kind of transformation, that kind of uh, idol uh, smashing, is a clear testament to the power of God in someone's life. And I'm sure many of you here uh, who've grown up in the faith or uh, you know, you've been a Christian for a while, uh, maybe some of you have heard testimonies of how people have turned from their addictions who turned from their addiction to alcohol or their addiction to drugs or something else. And, you know, those kinds of testimonies are really, really powerful because in those testimonies, what you realize is that, wow, there's no way that this person could have done this by their own power. There's no way that this person could have turned from this idol by their own power at this cost. It could only have been by the power of God. And I think that's what was happening in the Thessalonian church when others around you, whether believers or unbelievers, when they see this work of God in your life, it can become a powerful witness to the gospel. When you're at your workplace and everyone at your workplace is uh, completely consumed with the desire for a promotion or uh, for money, uh, how will the way that you live in that workplace show them that you're not enslaved to that idol, but you actually serve a different king? that you actually serve the living and true God. When people at your workplace are tempted to gossip and uh, they are enslaved to the idol of wanting to be better than others, how will you show the peace of Christ that you have in that situation? Friends, I think that can be a powerful witness in and of itself. When people see that God, this God that this person worships actually has an effect on their life in such a way that They're not serving all of these different idols. Friends, Jesus will not look precious to the world if he's just another fix that you get on Sunday. What we do when we repent, when we turn from these idols, is we not only confess our sin, but we also confess our allegiance to our true king. We say to God, God, you are truly enough. God, you are my true king. God, I serve you and not these idols. And when we fail to do that, because we will fail to do that in 2017, we go again to God and we ask for his help. And I pray that in 2017 we would do this together as a community. Because it's not enough to just confess your sin of idol worship on your own. 
But we have to do that together. And when a church does that together, that can be a powerful witness to the people around them. So I want to close again by asking you, who do you worship? Does your behavior show that you are in love with God and that all your desires are wanting to serve and please him more and more? Or do you find that you are actually worshiping yourself or maybe something that God has created? You know, in New York City uh, or in America, in this world, we're surrounded by so many idols. But I pray that in 2017, we will make the the effort to trust Christ, to run to him. You know, we can make all these different visions. We can cast all of these ministry plans. But if in our own hearts, Christ is not king, then those plans, uh, I hope they wouldn't succeed because then uh, those plans will succeed by our own power and not by the power that Christ gives. And we want people to see Christ, right? We don't want them to see the goodness of Good News Church or uh, the wisdom of Good News Church. We want them to see the wisdom of Christ shown through even our weakness and in our repentance. So let's seek to do that more. Uh, Let's like the Thessalonians, seek to turn to God, the true and living God, from our idols. Uh, Let's pray together.